Welcome to the COVID-19 Science and Society podcast, where we explore COVID-19 recent topics with experts to better understand the current situation and to look at the most recent data for the scientific and medical community. I'm Anton Posniak, and I'm delighted to bring this podcast to you on behalf of Virology Education, where we'll discuss the latest information available on long-term complications of the disease, monoclonals, variants, and outbreak preparedness under the guidance of our international guests. In May 2020, Eliza Perigo, an archaeologist here in the UK, sent a Twitter hashtag to describe her own experience of the long-term health consequences of having COVID-19. So this was coined Long COVID. What is it? How does it manifest itself? And who does it affect? And here today, I'm joined by Professor Carlos Del Rio, who's an infectious disease specialist from Emory University uh, in the United States. And he's an expert in this long-term consequences of COVID-19. Welcome, Carlos. Delighted to be with you, Anton. Now, Carlos, we, we have a transatlantic difference in terminology for this long COVID. Perhaps you'd just like to explain to me uh, how you approach the terminology of this and perhaps the definition as well. Yeah, it's a little bit like, you know, how you guys drive in one side of the street and we drive in the other, right? It's a little bit of of a of a of this of a disconnect there, but the reality is, I think we're all talking about the same thing. We we really need the first thing you need when you find a new syndrome is try to define it, and there's been a lot of effort to try to define this long COVID or or long term consequence of COVID. Uh, you know, the the U.S. Centers for Disease Control uses the term post COVID conditions to describe any health issues that persist more than four weeks after first being infected with the virus that causes COVID. But when you talk about the type of post-COVID conditions, it includes things like long COVID with a range of symptoms that we'll talk about later. It includes the multi-organ effects, um, you know, that many of them are mediated by, by the immune system or immune conditions such as the multi-system inflammatory syndrome that primarily affects children. And it also includes the effects of, of COVID, uh, you know, treatment or hospitalization, primarily post-ICU syndrome and post-traumatic stress disorder and a variety of other things. So, so I think you have a variety of, of, of it's, it's a mishmash of different conditions put under one roof. Yeah, but I think most of us and the public are, are, are very concerned about this so-called long COVID syndrome with, with fatigue and brain fog and malaise uh, and breathlessness that seems to last a long time. Do you think that this is a, a specific condition? Um, and how common is it if, you know, around the world? Well, you know, I mean, I think it started with, you know, we're trying to, again, trying to define this, right? And most people that, most people that have COVID recover from COVID and do fine, but it became increasingly clear uh, from a variety of different reports that some people who have developed COVID go on to have persistent symptoms extending beyond three weeks after their initial symptoms. And most are, are uh, mild uh, and most uh, recover. And then you have people that go beyond that. And those people that go beyond that, uh, you know, may have a variety of different conditions. And I think what we've learned is that that symptom persistence, you know, tends to occur regardless of age, of comorbid burden, 
of degree of COVID-19 illness severity. So there's something else happening. Now, we need to be careful not to confuse it with the, with the post-ICU syndrome, because as, as you know, you know, many people that have been in the ICU that have been sick for a long time go on to develop a variety of different conditions after coming out of the ICU. So we need to distinguish people that just were really ill and are trying to recover from that from those people that simply have persistent symptoms after having COVID. And a lot of the studies that we have seen come out primarily come from hospitalized patients. And I think that's where we have a lot of difficulty trying to distinguish this too. Yeah, uh, the UK have published recently their our statistics group, uh, the National Statistics Group, saying that there's, there's a million cases reported of this sort of syndrome. And most of those weren't in a, an ICU setting. They were, they, they've been um, ill with COVID, but then recovered and not been in hospital. And, and they say the commonest symptoms are breathlessness, uh, fatigue, uh, muscle pains, uh, and, then, and, and some sort of long-term um, disturbance of cognition. Um, how much have you seen this uh, in the United States, this sort of syndrome? Well, you know, again, I, I, I tend to agree that, that this is not, we still don't know exactly. I think one of the best data, as you, you mentioned, comes from the COVID symptom study. And this, this is an app-based uh, uh, study in which, you know, people from the UK, from, from the US, from Sweden have entered symptoms. And the data there suggests that 10 to 50% of individuals, even those with mild cases, don't recover quickly and develop the symptoms. So we definitely are seeing it. You know, we've had in the U.S. over, you know, 36 million people infected. So, you know, if you think about 10, 15 percent of people developing this, we're talking about a, a significant number of individuals. I mean, we're talking about in the in the three to five million people having uh, long COVID. It's, it's common enough that we are seeing you know, multiple places, including my own institution, opening clinics to manage and to see these patients. And you're absolutely right. I think the, the symptom, uh, the the symptoms includes, you know, uh, tiredness or fatigue, uh, uh, headaches, difficulty thinking or concentration. And we talk about this later, you know, the brain fog syndrome, you know, uh, dizziness, uh, you know, tachycardia, palpitations, chest pain, difficulty breathing, cough, muscle pains, joint pains. Uh, depression, anxiety. One thing that I have found interesting in some patients is actually persistence of the loss of smell and taste. And even some patients then go on to describe uh, parosmia. You know, they just horrible smells that that they can't uh, eat food, they can't enjoy what they're eating or drinking because it just smells and tastes bad. And and I think there's a lot of of, uh, of this virus uh, potential damage to the olfactory uh, nerve that we need to understand. Yeah, I suppose it's a kind of neurotropic virus in the end. Uh, and so we, we should expect there may be some nervous system involvement that could go on long term. Now, Carlos, one of the things that really interests me is that if we take ourselves back pre-COVID, there was this whole meningoencephalitis, post-viral fatigue syndrome, and a lot of the medical profession did not buy into this. They thought it was probably some post-psychological. Others thought it was a real entity, but it seems to me that COVID has highlighted that post some of these viruses do cause long-term issues, which um, we should take very seriously. And, and we now have an opportunity of trying to discover who's at risk 
and, and what the pathogenesis is. I mean, I don't know what your views about about what was going on in the States with ME syndrome or post-viral fatigue. And, and do you think that the um, attitude of physicians has changed now? Well, I think so. You know, I think we all know of this uh, post-viral, uh, you know, fatigue and symptoms that we've seen, whether it's, you know, if you call it, you know, post-Epstein-Var virus infection or post-viral meningoencephalitis or... I think we all have seen patients just not recover well. Uh, I don't think we quite understood the syndrome. And I think there is an opportunity with COVID to try to really understand what's happening with individuals and how do they 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 present and what kind of uh, manifestations they have. And more important, what kind of treatment do they need? I still think that that what we need to understand is how much of this is is due to damage from the virus, how much is due to uh, to inflammation, and how much is due... To, uh, to just, you know, the, the neuropsychologic stress that we're seeing. I mean, without doubt, without doubt, there is, you know, people have a lot of, uh, you, know, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, you know, post-COVID, uh, uh, you know, symptoms that I think we need to really also try to understand better. So with this syndrome, do you think that there are any... Uh, well, are the data to suggest that there is there's anyone who's particularly vulnerable to developing uh, these long-term symptoms that last, say, more than 12 weeks? Well, you know, again, uh, the 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 epi data that we have uh, to date uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily say. I mean, we know that those people that are that have been sicker tend to have more of this persistence of symptoms. But how much of those persistence of symptoms are the post ICU syndrome? or the post-critically you know, critically ill syndrome versus long COVID. I think well, that's something we need to understand. Uh, the US uh, NIH has been very interested in, in this, and they're setting up cohort studies to really try to understand and, and better define the syndrome. I think what's really clear is that at least data from, uh, from, from uh, you know, there's one study, it's a multi-international uh, web-based survey, suggests that, you know, that about, it's more common in females, it's more common in white people. And that's interesting because, for example, here in the U.S., we see, uh, we see a much more uh, of this illness, uh, both in the severity of the illness, in minority populations. And there are some studies suggesting that we have pretty much not paid attention to, to the so-called long COVID in, in, in African-Americans and in, in Hispanics. So I think we, we need to pay attention and, and not get skewed by by data that may be reported just because of who has access to the internet. Yeah, I no, I agree, and I think that that we, we hopefully get data out of Latin America where the um, epidemic's raging, the pandemic's raging, as well as India. But I, I think that they're probably very involved in other things at the moment, uh, uh, and hopefully we'll be collecting data from that. In the UK, I mean, they they said that. Um, uh, again, that females and, and that people between sort of 35 and 70 were, were complaining of this more than others. But again, as you say, it may be um, uh, 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 confounding factors that that's why that's the case. But what about kids, Carlos? Do children get this? Do children have, because that would be a desire. I know children don't get that much COVID, but if a percentage of them were getting long COVID, uh, that would be quite a serious thing. Uh, yes, I, I, I'm not aware of much data on children. I'm, I'm clearly aware of data on young adults, adolescents, and young adults. And I, I do think that 
that that's a group that I, I pay particular attention because, you know, frequently adolescents and young adults, uh, at least here in the States, many of them, especially young adults, especially young adults, males have been saying, well, you know, I don't need to get vaccinated because COVID is not going to kill me. But, you know, I keep on telling them, yes, but if you get COVID, you may get long COVID. And by getting vaccinated, you prevent the infection, which at the end of the day is what you want to do. So I think it's important that we understand the syndrome in young uh, individuals who have not been very sick with COVID because they are, in fact, the group that I worry the most about. But I would tell you that, you know, the Social Security Administration here in the U.S. is very concerned about understanding the syndrome because just as, as we mentioned previously, the, the sheer numbers may lead to a just a, a an epidemic of disability coming down the line, right? Yeah, I suppose that, I mean, one of the reasons about children is if you're a parent and you've got a child that's off school or having problems, you you know that has a whole impact on family life. And if you have COVID, then, a long COVID, then your job may be at risk in terms of continuing it. Uh, uh, your your social life deteriorates, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So uh, if it's true that 10, 15% of people who develop COVID will go on to get this, I agree, it could be uh, an enormous stress on society. But we, we don't have any data, do we, Carlos, about people who got COVID, say, a year ago, or a year and a half ago when it first started, where, how many of those are, st are still symptomatic? Because there must be recovery from long COVID. Otherwise, I think we'd be hearing uh, a, a, a much bigger noise in science about this. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. I think there, there probably is. And I think that, you know, again, establishing well-studied cohorts that we can look at, I think are going to make a big difference. The, the vaccination issue, I thought that was a very interesting point, that actually it's not only preventing COVID, but also long COVID. Uh, but, you know, people are, uh, I see and hear people who are concerned that they will get fatigue and issues after vaccination. But but this is must be a completely different, uh, that's a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? is it not? Oh, totally. And, and the people that I've seen getting fatigue after vaccination or, or not feeling well, you know, it's in the first day or two, but then it goes away, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, what about the medical community? Do you think we, I mean, you've talked about some of the uh, studies going on and big thing uh, and big um, cohorts uh, and research. Individual physicians, when we see patients now complaining of this, what, what evaluation do you think we do? Now, I'm not talking about the person who's come out of ITU, but somebody who's had COVID, uh, has recovered from co the COVID itself, um, first of all, should we do more swabs to see if they still got viral replication? You know, you've seen them at three months. Well, you know, I, I don't think so. I think what we need to do is look to a, do a thorough symptom assessment and ideally in person or through, you know, telemedicine and do that follow up, you know, four to six weeks after recovery. And then again, 12 weeks after recovery. And if the person continues to have, for example, dyspnea or, or shortness of breath, you know, uh, consider doing pulmonary function tests, a chest X-ray, uh, do a pulmonary embolus workup, uh, get an echocardiogram. Uh, you know, if the person has, uh, you know, uh, their creatinine is up or, or may have some proteinuria, you know, consider evaluating for, for kidney disease. If, uh, you know, if the person has, uh, you know, uh, neuropsychologic syndromes, you know, consider, you know, screening for, for anxiety, for depression, for PTSD, uh, for cognitive impairment. So I think it really is, is kind of a primary care approach. You really have to see 
where the patient is and then do the evaluation from that perspective. I think that the, uh, you know, then the issue comes, okay, you know, uh, if the person shows evidence of myocarditis or myocardial dysfunction or arrhythmias, what do you do, right? What's the next process and how do you evaluate the person? If the person has evidence of, of, uh, of you know, pulmonary disease and, and you find that they have persistent, they have pulmonary fibrosis, uh, what's the next step? What do you do after that? So I think we, we, we really have to evaluate the patient based on, on what the symptoms are. So, so in the end, this is going to end up being a, a diagnosis of exclusion, but we might find some partial damage that doesn't explain the whole syndrome, but still we could try and do something about it. Do you think that uh, I mean, special clinics are being set up by this, uh, for this, for long COVID? Uh, and to me, I think that they could be very useful because they will start differentiating all these different things you've been speaking about uh, in terms of the ITU syndromes or the, the depressed, uh, the people with actual physical problems. Uh, um, do, what do you see about that happening in terms of resource? Do you think that's a good idea to set these clinics up in, in, in say, bigger centers and people could be referred in? Well, you know... <laughs> I think so, but at the end of the day, it has to be a multidisciplinary approach and it has to be centered in primary care. So in places that you have good primary care, it may just be going back to primary care. The reality is part of the problem we have is our primary care infrastructure, at least here in the U.S. and in many parts around the world, is not what it should be. So I think it depends what your primary care infrastructure is. In the U.K., it may be that you'll do it in primary care. My, you know, my biggest concern, Anton, is what's going to happen is there's so many you know, hundreds of millions of people infected globally, that somebody shows up in, in a cardiology clinic and has evidence of heart failure. And then they go ahead and do a serology, right, for COVID. And they have evidence of having had COVID infection in the past. They were never vaccinated. And the question is going to be, is this just heart failure because the person is hypertensive? Or is this heart failure because of post-COVID? So I think we're going to have some trouble distinguishing this so-called so post-COVID from, from just disease progression, from natural disease progression that we're going to see from many other illnesses. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. You know, you really you really stimulated something great there for me, uh, Carlos, because when I started the, this podcast, I thought I sort of understood long COVID. But it seems to me the more we talk about it, the more complicated trying to get a definition, differentiate it from other things and, and trying to understand it is absolutely critical because... As I say, uh, and what you've said, if if ten to twenty percent of people post COVID get problems, we really need to sort out exactly what they are and give them, you know, give them the right name and make sure we can uh, uh, put the right treatment forward. And and I wanted to ask you finally, really, is what about patient support groups and 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 patient advocates, uh, advocacy, etc., for this sort of syndrome? How do you see that playing out? You know, I think that's going to be really important. Again, uh, you know, one of the one of the bad consequences of COVID has been social isolation, and getting people together again, I think, is really important. So, so I think just human connection may be something that many people are missing, right? And uh, and how do we ensure that there's human connection and there's human support? So, support groups is something that I have always, you know, have always believed in from HIV and from other, you know from other backgrounds. And I think they're clearly helpful, this, the so-called peer groups that, that get together with you and that you can share things that otherwise you wouldn't understand. I do think, though, that, again, I want to go back to talk about the uh, 
the the emotional health and the well-being. I mean, I think the biggest long-term consequence of COVID that I see is really serious problems of, of depression, anxiety, uh, mood disorders. And I think we need to pay attention again to mental health, which is something that, quite frankly, as, as, as a global health uh, population, we really haven't done very well. I mean, we global health, global health has ignored mental health. And I think, again, this is an opportunity to really take mental health into consideration and do a better job addressing mental health. Well, with, with that last uh, uh, thought, Carlos, I'd, I'd like to thank you very much for this stimulating discussion. Uh, and uh, I hope the listeners here will look at other resources uh, and, and keep their eye open for what's happening with long, so-called long COVID or PASC. Uh, and we hope to be back with you with another podcast shortly uh, about monoclonal antibodies. But before I say goodbye, any last thought, Carlos? Yeah, my last thought is that, you know, if you can get vaccinated, because at the end of the day, you don't want to get COVID. The best way to, 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 to deal with long COVID is to prevent it. So not getting infected, I think, is key to preventing long COVID. Thank you very much. And it's, um, uh, I'd like to say thanks to all of you for listening. And for you, Professor Carlos Del Rio from Emory University in the United States, we've been talking about long COVID. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Make sure to check out the notes for any references during the podcast. You can learn more about virology education and our other programs at www.academicmedicaleducation.com. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.